So if you are able now, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? And we stand out of respect for the authority of God's word, just as a reminder that we submit to the authority of God's word. We don't make it submit to our own opinion. So here, the word of the Lord, it's not going to be on the screen this morning, but it comes from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is God's word. It is true, and it's given out of his love. You may be seated. So this morning we have a special uh, chance to have Mark Oshman preach for us. Mark is the pastor of Redemption Parker, which is conveniently enough located in Parker. They're a member of the Acts 29 network, the same network that we are a part of. Uh, You guys planted probably seven years ago, six years, six years ago. Uh, And that's just a wonderful church up in Parker. If you know any friends up there, make sure you encourage them to check out Redemption Parker. Uh, And also Mark is working on doing a 10 second handstand as his goal for this year. So if you want to ask him to do that afterwards, it'd be great to encourage him to do that. well. (laughs) Well, thank you for that. That is one of my uh, New Year's resolutions. Uh, but then I was talking to uh, one of our members. She was a gymnast at Stanford and almost on the Olympic team. And I was like, so can you, can you still do a 10-second handstand? She's like, no. And I was like, oh, okay. That's going to be harder because I'm six foot five. But I'm working on it. That has nothing to do with what I'm going to talk to you about this morning. So uh, welcome. I, I, I am, it is a joy to be here. Grew up in Colorado, grew up as a latchkey kid. Any latchkey kids in here? Okay, so if you were a latchkey kid, you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you don't know what that is. That just meant, uh, well, in my circumstance, I grew up in Littleton. Uh, my mom was a single mom. That meant she went off to work. I, I got home from school and uh, found the key under the rock and had a few hours to myself. And then summertime was the best because uh, I would just wake up and, and roll downstairs and um, there, my mom would leave me a list of chores to do and so uh, I guess for, the, for this generation of parents that, that was when like kids did work around the house um, <laughs> but not, not very good work because I knew my mom got home at 6 and so I'd look at the list and I, I would say okay better be back by 5.58 to can knock these things out. Um, but, but I would get outside, get my bike, go over to my friend's house and, we, and, and knock on their doors and kind of rally the crew. And we, our summer days were just spent kind of roving around the neighborhoods on our bikes like a, like a pack of wolves, right? Uh, and that was the whole day. It, it was amazing. I, I loved my childhood. Well, one, one summer day, I was maybe about 10 years old. And uh, we heard fire trucks. And so we said, man, that that's, sounds like it's coming from just a few blocks away. Let's get on our bikes and, and go check this out. So that's what we did. And as we're, we're going down the street and take a turn, we, we eventually come around the corner. And it was a scene. Like, like there's fire trucks everywhere. And in the middle of the road, uh, it, had, it had exploded. A water vein was shooting up like 25 feet in the air, just causing this massive fountain that, that then came down and, and caused a, a, a river 
river down, down the road. And we we're like, wow, what is going on? And then I saw something else. I saw the news trucks had arrived to report on this. Like, okay, this is 1985. Uh, there, there is no internet. There's no 24-hour news cycle. This was a big deal. And I see the news trucks starting to sit up. And something in my mind in that moment clicked. I'm like, this is my moment. I'm going to get on TV. you got to understand, this is before the Internet. There's no Twitter. There's no going viral. Like, the way you made it well, was you got on TV. And so I was like, I'm going to figure out. And so I, I see them set up their camera, and the, the, the camera, the, she's, she's with their, her microphone. She's reporting on this scene. And so I'm respectful. I'm, I'm about 25, 30 feet behind her. And I'm, I'm not trying to figure out where the camera's going to be. And, and then, then, then I just do it. I just, I'm just start walking. <laughs> My feet are getting wet, but I just, I don't know how long I did this for. I think I did it for a while, though, because I'm like, I'm on TV. <laughs> I have made it. This is amazing. I can't believe that somewhere out there, people are looking at me. And so uh, I, I did that. I got on my bike, went back uh, a couple blocks back to my neighborhood. And, and my neighbors, they were like, hey, we, we saw you on TV. I was like, yes. They're like, well, only half of you. We only saw your legs kind of walking <laughs> back and forth, back and forth. And you're like, man, that is a ridiculous story. And it is. Uh, I, 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 it is a ridiculous way for a 10-year-old to kind of seek fame and glory and identity and, and all those things. That, that is ridiculous. But, but really, I tell that story because it's kind of a microcosm of really all of our stories. And in countless other ways, I have tried to uh, get fame, get glory, make a name for myself, be seen, see that I'm worthy, like in countless other ways, maybe more nuanced, maybe uh, in different ways, but, but we all do it. We want to see who, who likes our posts, who, who says we're valuable. And, and when, you, when you zoom out and you think about just a lifetime, a century, you think about the scope of the planet or the scope of the universe, the scope of eternity, all our efforts, whether it's a 10-year-old derpy little kid trying to get on TV or someone running for their second term of president, all of our efforts, the, the author of Ecclesiastes is going to tell us is vanity, meaningless, just a breath. Every one of our attempts to make ourselves known and to be known and to be glorified and to show the world that we're valuable, in the end, are, are really nothing really nothing, but we live in this time where there is just this incredible pressure to do that. We live in uh, what, what would be called post-post-modernity, uh, at the Enlightenment when, when collectively, at least in the West, we, we started to question and challenge and, and, and think, what, what, who is God? What is he or she or they or, or whatever? Uh, when ultimate reality began to be questioned, that, that uh, at first seemed like, oh, this is cool. And, and this kind of rolls down into even our own conversation sometimes. Maybe you've said or you've heard someone said, well, my God is like this or I could never uh, believe in a God who's like this, or I would, uh, my God would do this. And, and everyone is kind of the arbiter of their own truth. And we kind of try to define ultimate reality uh, on our own because, again, there's, there's no 
basis anymore. Well, that eventually flows down to this other thing that postmodernity says is a, is a promise. And at first, it kind of seems kind of cool. The promise is, hey, you can define yourself. You can define uh, your own value and your own identity. And so you could be whoever you want to be. You can uh, set yourself forward in that way. And the promise sounds really exciting until it doesn't. Because the promise then turns into a panic that says, man, I have to. I have to put myself out there. I have to create an identity. I have to show the world that I'm worthy, that, I'm, that I, 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 uh, I have value and I have dignity. And, and if, if, I, if this identity doesn't work for me, then I'm, I'm going to have to try a, another one and another one and another one. And in the end, it, it gets to be exhausting. Exhausting. The postmodern promise is that you can be whatever you want. And the panic is that you have to figure out what you want to be. And the good news of our text this morning as we're going to begin to work there, it is a tremendously good news. We're going to see that two things. You're going to see that, first of all, we don't define anything. We, we don't define who God is, and we don't define who we are. And again, to our postmodern ears, at first when we hear that, that kind of seems kind of oppressive, but I, but I assure you uh, that, that this is good news this morning. We're, we're going to look at a text that is tremendously good news that that God is the one who defines and tells us. So if you have your Bibles, you can begin to make your way to the book of Exodus, the second book of, of the Bible. We'll, we'll be in chapter 3. Calvin, John Calvin, in his Institutes, at the beginning of the Institutes, he starts it like this. He says, nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. When Calvin is saying all wisdom comes from this, he's saying like to know ultimate reality, to know God, and then to know ourselves. He's not saying it in the kind of modern or postmodern way, like, oh, know yourself in a therapeutic, deistic way. No, he's saying when we know who made us, why we were made, the value that is comes from that, where we've gone wrong, then we can see our way back. All true knowledge, all true wisdom comes from these two things. Well, God is about to break off us some wisdom this morning, some knowledge this morning. It's in Exodus chapter 3. Sorry, I'm booming. Okay. Exodus chapter 3. Uh, the reason that we're jumping into this is, well, because I'm preaching through Exodus in Parker, and uh, I thought this would be a good one to come back to. But let me just go ahead and set up the scene. You, you, may, uh, you may know what... what what Exodus is about, especially these first few chapters. Uh, but backing it up even from there, God had made a promise to Abraham, and the covenant to Abraham was, I'm going to bless you, and through you all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Oh, you see stuff above me? Okay, what is that? Is that more scripture? What is going on there? I don't, even, I don't even know what's going on here. Okay, I just see everyone looking up. I'm like, there should not be anything on the screen. Um, but... but <laughs> I'm confused by it. Okay. I'm going to back up now. Okay, so um, so God had made a promise to Abraham and said, uh, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a people. They're going to be as numerous as the stars on the, in, the, in the sky, and uh, I'm going to give you a land. Well, at the end of the book of Genesis, uh, we find the people of, uh, of God uh, make their way to Egypt to 
get saved from a famine, and they begin to multiply. Over the next 430 years, they multiply. So God is fulfilling his promise to give, him, give them a people. But the problem is now they're enslaved in Egypt, and they don't have the land. And so uh, that's where the story begins in Exodus. And God sees, and God hears, and he, he, he sees his people suffering. And, and we know the story. There's uh, slavery, and uh, God then, uh, Moses is born, but he's preserved, and he grows up up in Pharaoh's household, and, and in growing up, he uh, gets a little bit older, and he recognizes, hey, um, so this is not right. My people are being mistreated, and he tries to th- take things in his own hands, and he, he kills an Egyptian, and they, he gets found out, and so he has to uh, flee, and for the, for the next 40 years, he's just kind of uh, falling around sheep as a shepherd, seeing the backside of sheep all day long. He's coming toward what, for most people, would be the end of their lives. And as he's, as he's walking one day, uh, he sees this bush that's on fire, and it's not burning up. And so he turns, the scripture tells us in, in Exodus 3 that he turns aside, and he begins to uh, follow there. And, and he hears the voice. We find out is the voice of God it says, Moses, come here. Come here. And he, he draws closer, and God says, come closer, but don't, don't come too close, Moses. This is holy ground. Take off your sandals. And he begins to have this conversation with the God of the universe. And God is revealing, hey, I I see my people. I hear their prayers. I'm about to respond. And in the midst of this conversation, this is where we're going to pick up our story. So Exodus chapter uh, 3, I will pick it up mid-conversation, verse 10. It says, "So, so now, God is speaking. So now, go, I am sending you, Moses, to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. He gives Moses this great commission, this amazing task. And and Moses knows the the enormity of it, right? He he knows what it's like to be in Egypt. He grew up in Pharaoh's household. He knows Pharaoh's the most powerful man in the world, has the greatest army in the world, the most technology in the world. And at this moment, and God says, I want you to go. Gives them this amazing, amazing commission. And Moses does what, what we do when we get, because we too have a great commission. But, but Moses, like us, what, what does he do? How does he re- respond? He doesn't, doesn't say awesome. He looks at himself. He looks at his own inadequacies. He looks at his past and his failure, his, his limits, all the things that we look at, Right? Because, after all, you have been given a great commission to make disciples of all nations. And we're like, well, I I can't do that. You don't understand my past. You don't understand all the ways that I've been faithless and I've failed. And so Moses gets us in that way. So, verse 11, Moses asks a question. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Israel? Egypt. Who am I? I'm nobody. I can't do this. I'm just a shepherd. At the end of my days, who am I? And then God answers him, but he doesn't really answer Moses' question, who am I? Look at God's answer, verse 12. God said, I will be with you. I will be with you. This is the promise of God to the people of God throughout the whole Bible. That's it. I will be with you. 
I will be with you, and will, this will be a sign to you that I, will, I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. God says, I will be with you. Moses, if you understood who was telling you that I would be with you, you wouldn't worry about yourself. You wouldn't look at your, your inadequacies, your failures, your past. You would know that me plus anyone is an overwhelming major, majority. But, but then if, if someone says, I want you to do something, and you say, who am I? He doesn't answer you. And he says, but I'm with you. Then, then that leads to another next question, right? Well, then who are you? Like if I go back to Egypt where I'm a wanted man and, and I go to my people and I go to Pharaoh, uh, I, they're going to say, who are you, Moses, and, and who is with you? And, and so Moses asks God for his name. And, and in the asking of God for his name, he's not just asking to, for an exchange of business cards, right? Like, like you get in the ancient Near East, the name was more than just information or something your parents gave you. The, the name spoke of your character. It spoke of your competency. It spoke of your past, your present, your future, your destiny. It spoke, to, spoke of your power. Like, like there was a lot in the name. And so, so Moses is gonna, saying, man, I, I'm going to need more. I'm going to need to, if I go, I'm going to need to know who you are. And I'm going to need to be able to tell them who's with us in this. And so God, he asked God for his name. Now God is under no obligation <clears throat> to give anything to anybody, but in this moment he condescends. Is this my water? My water. Sorry. I want to be scratching all the morning. <clears throat> in this moment he condescends and God reveals his name. Verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now this, this seems like deliberately set up to destroy our categories. I was asking you for a name. I was asking you for a label. That, that is usually fo followed by a noun, personal pronoun. Or, uh, I'm asking for, for something and you give me a verb. You give me actually a verbal sentence. I am that I am. In the Hebrew, it's ashir haya. No, haya ashir haya. In fact, I'll put the first uh, in the Hebrew up there. So you see, it reads from right to left. <clears throat> and those little dots you see there were added in the 6th century. Those are vowels because Hebrew doesn't have vowels. And, and, and it, was, it was an attempt to be able to pronounce some things. Um, we would tr transliterate it. The next slide. Y-H-W-H, -H. <coughs> the best we can approximate to that would be maybe Yahweh. Um, in, in your Bible, it's going to be translated as Lord or I am. Those are the next two slides. I am or Lord. It is the verb to be. It is the verb uh, I am that I am. I was, I be, or I will be. It could be just translated be. My name is B. Well, what is God saying in this name? What, what is he revealing about himself that is earth-shaking in this moment? Uh, many things. In the Hebrew, because it's uh, repeated, that there is an emphasis here. Um, in, in your Bible, whenever you read in modern translations, uh, even in, later on in this passage, when you see the, the word Lord, 
and it's all capitalized, it's actually referring to the divine name. And the reason why it doesn't just say Yahweh there is it's this ancient tradition to absolutely, at all times, respect the holy name of God. Because this is the name of God. So, so when I was in uh, Hebrew class, I don't know if you had this in your Hebrew class, but when I was in Hebrew class, when we would be reading through a passage and we would come to uh, the divine name, we would not say the name. We would take the ancient tradition and replace the divine name with a generic name, Adonai. We would read Adonai in that moment. And if there was a, a Messianic Jew in our class, and if for whatever reason, maybe in a test or on a paper, we were forced to uh, write the, the divine name in Hebrew, that Messianic Jew would then take that piece of paper and for the rest of his or her life, they would keep it safe because it held the divine name. You, you have to understand the name. The name is worth something. The name has power. The name speaks of his character. This is an intimate thing that God would condescend and reveal his personal nature to his people. There are many things that, are, um, that, that kind of flow out of this. It speaks of God is who he is, who he has always been, and who he will, uh, always will be, his, his fullness. It speaks of God's freedom. He alone is the definer of all things. He alone is the one who reveals his name and gives himself the name. He has uh, freedom in that. It speaks of his consistency. He is the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was, he is, he will be. It speaks of, uh, of an expectation because this is the God who stands outside of time, who will continue to reveal himself. He is infinite. We are not. He will always be infinite. We will never be infinite. So there will never be a moment in eternity where we will be bored because God will always be revealing more and more and more of his glory and his majesty and his name to us. So heaven's not going to be boring at any moment. There's never going to be a moment 10 billion years from now where we're going to be able to sit back and say, I know I am now. I know everything there is about God. No. No. I am is limitless. Limitless. And so God reveals this to Moses. It speaks of our trust and hope. Well, you are the God who was. You are the God who is. And you are the God who will be. And I can rest and hope in that. This is a powerful moment. This is a cornerstone moment in the Bible. One commentary in Exodus says uh, this verse, that the name of God, the rest of Exodus, really the rest of the Old Testament, and really the rest of the Bible is an exposition on this verse. What does it mean that God is I am? Well, well, the story continues, and uh, in verse 15, it continues to roll out. So, so if, if God is I am, then uh, th that, means, that means a few things as we, as we think about this. I am is the center of everything. God is saying, I am running the show. I am the same every day forever. I am the owner of everything. I am the Lord I am the creator and sustainer of life. I am the savior. I am more than enough. I am inexhaustible and immeasurable. I am God. 
That's how God answers Moses' second question. But, but maybe you see this in this passage. In answering Moses' second question, he also answers Moses' first question. Did, did you see that? If you are, I am, Moses is realizing in this moment, if you are, I am, that I am, that means my name, who am I, remember? He says, who am I? My name is, I am not. And your name is, I am not. I am not running the show. I am not in control. I am not the solution. I'm not the owner of anything. I'm not the center of, every, of, of everything. I'm not all-powerful. I'm not the Savior. I am not the Lord. Moses' mind is being blown in this moment. I know I am. So, so it goes on in verse 15. God also said to, to Moses, Say to the Israelites, the Lord. Again, you'll see right there, all caps, the divine name. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Do, do you see the consistency, the constancy of it? The past, present, and future. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your ancestors. This is my name forever, from generation to generation. And now we find ourselves in the story. Because we're from generation to generation. This is an invitation. This is an invitation to uh, exchange the story of ourselves for the story of God. To enter into his story. To know him and to know his name. It goes on, verse 16. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, sorry, appear to me. And said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. He's the God who sees. He's the God who hears. He's the God who responds. And then uh, as I just close out this, I'll, I'll read these next several verses. But, but notice how God talks in these verses. Verse 17. It says, And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. A land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I, will, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians." Did you notice how God speaks there? At first, you might say, man, God is super confident. But it's far more than that. God is not confident. God knows. He says, this is what's going to happen. You're going to say this. This person's going to say that. 
you're going to respond this way, they'll respond that way. And he is, he is not using his kind of God power, his, his divine power to uh, manipulate things in this way. No, he is the God who knows, who is in all and beyond all and over all. That was true then, and that is true now about our own lives as well. He's the God who sees, the God who knows, the God who is in absolute control. No one else can talk like this. Oh, we do. We, we act like we know. We think we, we know what's going to happen tomorrow. We think we know what's going to happen. But we don't know, and we shouldn't talk like this. None of us knows that we will leave here alive today. We believe it. We think we do. But only God knows like this. Only God knows. And so as we just kind of think on what this means, what this means, there, there is good news in this. The God who created all things is the one who defines all things. There is good news because that means the, the pressure's off. You, you, don't have to, uh, you don't have to prove to anyone or anything or in the world your value. God says, I give you value. I created you. I define who you are. So, so the pressure's off. You, you don't have to worry how many likes you get on your next post. You don't have to, uh, in just a, in a countless ways, you don't have to show the world that you're a, a good husband or a good father or, or a good wife or a good worker or a good leader or a conqueror of this or that. Like, in the end, you can rest in the God who is above all and in all, through all, who has been in your past, is with you in the future, and is already uh, is with you now and is already with you in the future. The pressure's off. So as I kind of meditated on this passage and studying it, sometimes I like, to, I like to kind of put it into one sentence, and I'll put this on the screen. It says, knowing and being known by I am realigns our lives to the ultimate, the eternal, and the good story we were made for. That's it. Knowing and being known by I am realigns our lives to the ultimate, the eternal, and the good story we were made for. This is this is what life is about. This is, should be the thesis of our life. To know him, to be known by him, and to realign our lives with his way. What he says about us. What he says about himself. To be known by him. That's, that's the ultimate goal of life. To know and to be known by him. So, so we, we pursue that. We make that the aim of our life. We, we, we pursue that in several ways. We pursue that in what we're doing right now. In worship, as we gather as God's rescued and redeemed people. We pursue that in community. We pursue that in prayer and with the Spirit. We pursue that ultimately through the, the Word of God that points ultimately to the Son of God. He, Exodus 3.14 points to Jesus. Colbert already read it, but I'll just read one verse from Hebrews. Hebrews 1.3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The author of Hebrews is reaching back to Exodus 3.14 and saying, you want to see what this looks like? Look at Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. See and savor Jesus. This, this is why we study the whole Bible. This is why we study Exodus so that the, 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 our New Testaments come alive. Like you can't really, uh, you can read the Gospels and get a lot out of them, but you won't really get them unless you start to connect to these dots. For example, John's Gospel. 
John has these I am statements. I'll put the first uh, six or seven of them on the screen here. I am. Jesus comes and, and, and he begins to say, I am. The, the, in the Greek, ego and me, it's a translation of what we just read in Exodus 3.14. <clears throat> but Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the true vine. Jesus uh, constantly is saying this. But, but there are two other occasions in John's gospel where he makes it even more explicit. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the, the, the soldiers come and they, 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 they're seeking out Jesus. And they're like, they, they say, who is, who is Jesus? And he stands forward and he says, I am. And in that moment, they all fall back because they know what he's saying. They're, they're blown away for what he's saying. There's another time in the gospel of John where uh, the Pharisees are coming and they're trying to trap Jesus. And you know it's a trap. You know that they've already got loaded when, when they start with, hey, is it true that you have a demon? Right? <laughs> like, you might feel that when you're talking to someone, but like, hey, I don't mean to be offensive, but are you demon-possessed? <laughs> like, that's how they start the conversation with Jesus. And he has this conversation, and, and in, at the end of the conversation, what does Jesus say? He says, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus is, don't ever let anyone tell you Jesus never claimed to be God. This is the most explicit way he could possibly claim to be God. He is claiming the divine name of Exodus 3.14. Jesus says, I am. What do they do in that moment? They, pick, they, they understand it. They pick up stones to murder him because they think he's guilty of blasphemy. They think he's guilty of saying, I'm the God of Exodus 3.14. He is guilty of that, but it's true. And so he says, I am. So we make it our aim to pursue, to know, and to align our lives with him. That, that's our whole life. So, 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 so that's, what, that's what life's about. And sometimes we, we lose the narrative. Sometimes we, well, all the time, we, we start to make the story about ourselves or we get worried or concerned. We forget that I am is with us. We forget that he has, we have a future and a hope with him. And so we, we get all knotted up or we, we, try to, uh, you know, we try to get on TV as a 10-year-old. In, in a million different ways, we, we lose the narrative. But the invitation of God to you and to me this morning and from his word is come back to the story. Realign your life to my life. You can be the star in your little story that lasts for a blip in eternity, or you can exchange that life to come into the story of God. The story. And so we, we make it our aim to know him, to be known by him. This, this is what repentance is, right? Repentance is realigning our lives with God's way and God's will. So, so last summer I was on sabbatical. We were driving around Europe. And even though I had Siri or Google Maps, Many, many times, I missed my turn, right? And in that moment, what happens? Well, well, Siri isn't like, you're an idiot. Guess you'll never get to your location now. Like, she doesn't say that to me, right? Like, I think there's an app for that, but I don't have that app. Boom. Okay, so, no, so rerouting, turn here, get back on track. Like, this is what the Christian life is. Oh, yeah, I, I forget. I forget the story is about God. I forget. That I, and I, get, I get so nervous. I get all tied up. And so, so, so we realign our lives through repentance with God. So you're off the hook. 
And I want to say this, and I want to say this in, in, in love, you know, because so, some of you might be thinking, wow, you know, I, I feel like you're making me feel small, Mark. <laughs> now, I would not drive down here an hour to leave my church for this morning to come tell people I don't really know, hey, you're small. I wouldn't do that. That's not my goal. My goal is not to make you feel small. My goal is to let you know the truth that you are small. Okay? Like that, that's just true. And also, you're average. I'm average. You have average marriages. You're an average father, an average wife. Your kids are average. Colbert, I get it. This is not a way to build a big church. It's your church. No, no, no. But there's a freedom to that. There's some life to that. Oh, I can be average. And that's okay. There's some hope. That, so the way, the way to build a big church is to not tell people they're average, especially don't tell them that their children are average. No one believes that. But the way to be able to build a church is like, yeah, you're awesome. You're amazing. Your family's amazing. I can't believe how awesome you are. And God just becomes this kind of like divine CrossFit coach just trying to help you reach your goals. No, no. The problem with that, there's two problems with that message. The message that you're awesome, you're amazing, you got this. The problem with that is that that sounds really kind of invigorating. That'll sell some books. That'll get some likes. That'll get some tweets and reposts. But in the end, that becomes really oppressive. Man, I, I gotta be awesome. I, I gotta get this. I've gotta succeed. I've gotta be better. I've gotta be above average. All these things. That there's really pressure to that. That's the first thing. It, it becomes an oppression to us. The second thing, it's not true. Only the, the message of the Bible isn't that you're awesome, you've got this, you're amazing. The message of the Bible is God's awesome. God's got this. He's amazing. So we can take our little average lives and rest and rejoice in him. So I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what struggles, anxieties, worries, concerns. But God's with you. He's got this. So if you come in here next week, I know you guys, you're, you're different. You got these tables. And so I don't know if you ever have uh, name tags at this table. Maybe I have name tags next week, and you'd be tempted to say, Colbert, Sandy, Jim, Mark, Bob. You'd be tempted to write that, and that, that would make sense. But, but in light of this passage, that's not what you should write, right? You and I should write next week as we put on our name tags, I am not. I am not. But that, but that wouldn't be the only thing we put on our name tags, Right? We put, I am not, but I know I am. I didn't come up with that on my own. Louis Giglio wrote a book with that title. It's a great book. I am not, but I know I am. That's who we are. I am not, but I know I am. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that by grace through faith, we get to know you to be known by you. Lord, help us. 
each of us, as we've lost the narrative along the way, and each week as we forget the gospel that you've seen, that you know, that you've rescued and redeemed us by your son, Jesus. Lord, if there's anyone here that has not yet bowed the knee to Jesus and confessed with their tongue that you are Lord, I pray that even now they would hear a voice other than my voice this morning and respond. Receive you by grace through faith. Receive your righteousness as you take away their sinfulness. Realign their lives with what life is truly about. For all of us, Lord, help this truth just to roll in our hearts and minds this week that I am not, but we know I am. Thank you, God, for who you are, who you were, and who you will be forever in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this is new for me since you got, we don't do this at our church, but you have a conversation now, which is cool. And so Colbert asked me to come up with some questions. I don't know if these are appropriate questions. If not, come up with your own. Um, but I just thought as we were thinking about this, a couple things that you get to discuss. Uh, how does the idea that we are not self-defined challenge your thinking about your life and your identity? And how might it comfort you? And then number two, when God reveals his divine and personal name to us, it's an invitation to rest in him. How might meditating on this truth help you in practical ways this week? Good? Awesome. Awesome. I hope, you're, hope your discussion went well. That's such a great sermon, Marks. Thanks for bring, coming down and bringing us the word and reminding us how average we are. Um, so we're going to talk about some of, we'll talk about our averageness after the newcomer's lunch. Again, if you're coming to that, I forgot to mention that it is uh, at 1145. So give us like 10 minutes to get set up and then we'll meet in the library. Uh, and we will have some childcare for your average kids to, uh, to be participating in while we're doing this. This is just like a mind blowing concept. The whole, we have like the, the biggest idol and Falcon is just completely cut out from under us when you say that, uh, yeah, that they're reminding us of that. And it's all, the, I love the comparison part, right? The infinite nature of God, the finite nature of us. God created us to worship him, so our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. And if you put the pressure to be infinite on anyone, especially your children, your career, your spouse, any of those things that we're tempted to go to, you are going to crush them with the weight that they were never meant to carry. That's a good reminder. So um, one of the things that we do here, uh, we want to do every week, is once we have heard the word of God preached, we want to respond and worship. And so we worship in several different ways. Uh, we worship through singing. We're going to sing two songs here in a second. Uh, we worship through the giving of our tithes and offerings. We have the offering box in the back. That's a reminder that because God has given us everything, we respond by giving of our finances. Uh, we worship God through prayer. So if you need prayer for anything, there's someone at your table who would love to pray for you. Um, also, I will be in the back corner over there, and I would love to pray with you of anything that you uh, is left on your heart. And the last thing that we do is we worship through communion. And so communion is this weekly reminder of what Jesus did for us on the cross. The, the bread reminds us of his body broken for us. The juice reminds us of his blood shed for us. And, and in that sacrament is the nourishment that our souls need. And it, it, what it is is this, this realignment of our hearts, reminding us, like Mark was saying, that God is I am and that we are not. 
lot. And so that, that coming to the table weekly is that discipline that that, that happens with. And so the, the idea of a, your be, a Siri rerouting you. The, re, the reason I love that we do communion every week is because every week we stumble in so many ways. And our hearts need to be rerouted back to the cross, back to Jesus, being reminded that he is enough and that we don't have to be with that. And so one of the things that stood out to me as we were, uh, Mark was preaching this morning is from verse uh, 12 of Exodus chapter 3 where God says, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And the thing that's interesting there is the sign that God gives uh, Moses about how he knows that God is God is something in the future. He's saying, once I have proved my character through this uh, act of deliverance, you'll be back at the same mountain and you'll be worshiping and serving God. And so the idea of like God is, is, is looking to the future and saying that will be your hope is after that takes place, you will know that what I am telling you is true. And in the same way, when we come to the New Testament, the sign that we have that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, is that he dies and then three days later, he rises again from the dead. So when Jesus was prophesying that or telling everyone that's what would happen, he's pointing to the future knowing that after it takes place, you can look back on that event and that will be the sign for you that Jesus was who he said he was. And so just like Israel could look back on the Exodus and say, God loved us enough, he was with us enough, he was powerful enough that he brought us out of bondage back to Mount Sinai where he had revealed his name. We as the people of God can look back on the cross and say, Jesus loved us enough that he died for us. He was powerful enough that he rose again from the the dead, defeating sin and death and all the enemies that exist against God and his people. And because of that, we look back on that past event with future confidence, knowing that in the future, our hope is secure because Jesus has already risen from the dead. And so this nature of who God is is something we're reminded of every week when we come to the communion table. So if you are able, would you please uh, join me in standing and we will uh, continue our worship service. Um, as we go about singing this, as you come to the table during these next two songs, you feel free to come at any point uh, that you're led. But I want to remind us to, to weekly, as we come to the table, come with this posture of repentance. Come with this posture that says, my heart needs to be realigned with the nature of who I am and the nature of who God is. And so, so, so say those prayers of confession in your heart as we come to the table, remembering that uh, I am not, but God is. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your word that reminds us that the uh, distinction between who you are and who we are. Uh, Lord, may we never think more highly of ourselves than we ought. May we never think of ourselves as anything but uh, people who are dependent on you for life and breath and sustaining. I pray that as we come to the table, that this would not just be a, a little bit of juice and a little cracker, but this would be a, the nourishment that our souls need to be realigned with the nature of you and the nature of us. God, may we come in humility and repentance. May we come with gratitude and joy knowing that you loved us enough to die for our sins and you were powerful enough to rise again three days later. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.